It's good to be with you today. I'm, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Ed Satterfield, Associate Pastor here at Third. I'm excited to be able to speak to you about this psalm today. We've been seeing in our study of the psalms over this summer how the psalms teach us to pray. If we use them, they can help us to navigate the pretty significant experiences that we're having in our lives and the emotions that they produce in us, both to um, feel the things that we're feeling when we're experiencing those things, but also to get God's help in them. Psalm 46 represents a very powerful picture of the reality of who God is and what He's done that turns our perspective on our troubles around. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read this and study this text. Our Father, we do look to you now and ask that you would open your word to us. Uh, Jesus, reveal to us yourself in this psalm, and Holy Spirit, work in our hearts so that it might not just be something we hear, but something that deeply affects us and changes the way that we live in relationship to you and others. We look to you for these things and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Got really great news for us today. Trouble will find us, it's inescapable. That's what this psalm proclaims to us. Whether we bring it on ourselves or by the choices we make or whether it comes to us not of our own accord but because of someone else who does something to us, who hurts us or creates calamity in our lives, or just because this world is a broken mess, we will experience trouble. Think about the ways that we typically handle trouble in our own lives, the way we try to cope with it, or the ways we might give advice to others. Sometimes we tend between two extremes, not the only way we deal, deal with it, but on the one hand, we might just say to one another, it'll be all right. We want to console. We want to give encouragement to help someone feel a little salve and a little balm. Or we might talk long and hard about all the things that they could do to sort of solve the problem and fix it. We want to uh, uh, give them the, the solution to their situation. We either minimize the problem or we actually encourage self-reliance or more self-reliance. While we try to be strong and handle our troubles ourselves, coping the best way we can, Psalm 46 presents to us a, a very different way to handle trouble. First thing this psalm suggests to us is to get in touch with the depth 
of our trouble. The psalmist does not minimize the difficulty that we face, but tells us that it's trauma that we're experiencing, that it is real, and that it goes very deep. The world is far more damaged than we are allowing ourselves often to be aware. We're urged to get in touch with the depth of our trouble. The picture the psalmist paints in this uh, early part of the psalm is of cataclysmic disaster. If you look at verses 2 and 3, what's presented there is natural disaster, the earth giving way, the mountains falling into the sea, ocean waves roaring and foaming, mountains shaking. He's describing the world falling apart. In the second stanza, which starts with verse 6, national disaster is described. Nations are enraged, ready to go to war with one another. Kingdoms are falling apart. The fabric of what we know to be our governmental world is deteriorating. These two metaphors describe these troubles as catastrophic, tearing at the very fabric of the order of things, causing comprehensive damage, creating total upheaval. Why does the psalmist do this? Perhaps it's because our natural tendency is is not to see the depth of the problem, and he wants us to get in touch with it. We use defense mechanisms to cope with trauma, and I'll just describe a few, one of them being denial. We either partially or totally avoid the full truth of what we're dealing with, either to just not acknowledge the fullness of the pain that we're experiencing or to somehow uh, make it seem more manageable. We rationalize explaining away key aspects of our particular difficulty in a way to kind of narrow it down to keep the focus something simpler or more uh, comprehensible so that we can cope with it. Or we sublimate, that's a big word, uh, but it just means you work really hard and do other stuff that might seem necessary or it might seem uh, important, uh, although many times it isn't. But we do things, we get active so that we avoid the issues that we face. This is just three of a pretty long list of defense mechanisms. But all of our defenses are there to help deflect our attention and our energy away from the fullness of the experience of the trauma that we're facing. The psalmist urges us not to do that, but to see the full calamity that we're facing. When someone we love dies, there's a huge wound. It is a trauma. The person that we've been partnered with or a companion to for years, who's given us love and acceptance, one of the most deep things that any one of us needs, they're gone, and they're not going to be replaced. There's a hole that cannot be repaired, and we're going to experience that, and it'll come back in waves at times when we least expect it, but it shows us that that's a trauma that is so deep. It's something we can't manage, and it tells us we need help beyond ourselves. Cancer. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, other serious diseases are really traumas that uh, change the very fabric of our lives. We lose the ability that we once had, uh, can't do or act in the way that we did formerly. Uh, Our ability is lessened or is taken away entirely. Much is uncertain about our future, and we have less and less control over our life and over our choices. We can't manage that kind of trauma ourselves. We need help that comes beyond ourselves. Another way we deal with things is to become dependent on something or someone else or a pattern of life to sort of manage it. We are addicted to things or to people 
or we shape a way of managing life by our own lifestyle that really doesn't completely manage all the things that we will face in our lifetime. We're stuck in a pattern that brings consequences that are destructive to us. And we cannot get out of that pattern until we come to a place to see how destructive that pattern is for us, that that addiction is for us, and how powerless we are to change it. We need a power, a strength that is beyond ourselves. Our reliance on natural defense mechanisms and our choice to self-manage is going to bring consequences that are pretty significant. We're going to feel overwhelmed. We're going to feel anxious. We're going to feel fear. We're going to feel a sense of depression or discouragement when those limited uh, abilities that we have uh, show themselves to be as such. Self-reliance makes it easier to look at a broken world and proclaim that God doesn't care because he hasn't fixed our problems. But this psalm urges us to see God and to switch from striving to relying on God's strength. God's command in this psalm is to cease striving, or as it's put in other translations, uh, to be still. And the way in which the psalmist begins to move us towards a place where we might cease striving is to paint the picture of Jerusalem, the holy city. This, that's the passage in uh, verses 4 and 5 where he's describing the river um, that streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of God. It's the place where God dwells. And what the psalmist is doing is he's describing uh, God's solution to our problem. It's not our, our efforts or our strength. It's because God dwells there He's made his commitment to his people. He has made a covenant to keep faithfulness to Israel, and he will bring the peace and stability that is desperately longed for. The contrast between the calmness of this this river and the tumult of the oceans and the mountains in the previous verses is distinct. And he makes that point to drive home the idea, it's God you need as your refuge. So move from striving yourself, relying on yourself to relying on God's strength. So we want to look at following the two commands that this psalm gives us. The first command is to look, to come and see, which is in uh, verse 8, and then in verse 10, to cease striving. To come and see, to look at what God has done is the first encouragement. We're going to see that over and over as we look at the psalms as we study them this summer. One of the most important and the first things that we need to do when we're in trouble is to remember who God is, what He's done in history, in space, and time. We could do that through looking at the Scriptures and recounting all of the things that the Scriptures tell us about how God has done that and how He's been faithful. Whether it's looking at the way in which God worked with the nation of Israel to bring them at a time of famine into a place of safety in Egypt or whether then when they went in slavery, he delivered them out of Egypt to the promised land. He took care of them. He met them at the point of their trouble. Or whether it's reading about Daniel and his friends as they faced the fiery furnace. They said, even if God doesn't save us, we're putting our trust in him because he is one on whom we can rely. If those passages in Scripture can encourage us to keep remembering who God is, the kind of person he is, the kind of way that he deals with us, We can trust that he will not only do that in history, he'll do that for us today because God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. We can also remember our own story 
and remind ourselves of the ways in which we have seen God to be faithful in the past or the stories of our close friends and family where we can tell ourselves, remember how God did this for you. Remember how God has done this for us. We can retell those times that God has shown up, how he's been our refuge and our stronghold. Well, that's the first command. Come and see. Remember what God has done. And the second one is to cease striving. Striving is living under our own power and our own wisdom. It's not being inactive. It's being inactive, uh, being active without God. And that's really what the heart of sin is, to manage our life without relating to God, without in trust in Him. We all share that orientation. We're all bent to rely on our own strength, on our own wisdom, our own insight, and we keep doing it over and over and over again. We started the service with the preparation of worship taken from Isaiah 30, which recounts that same encouragement or call to quietness. He says, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Do you know, we're just determined not to do that. And if you know that passage in Isaiah 30, it goes on to tell a little bit of a story about that self-reliance. We just had that wonderful call and command to be quiet and rest because that's our salvation. It's our strength. But what do we say? We say, no, I will flee on horses. And the the, uh, passage in Isaiah says, therefore you shall flee, and those that uh, pursue you will be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you're left as a signal flag on a mountaintop, as a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you and waits on high to have compassion. It's telling us that God will let us be self-reliant. He'll let us flee because he wants us to get to that place where we are ready to give up. We're ready to signal like that person alone on the mountaintop, I give up, I'm hopeless, I have no power in myself, I have no answers to the, to the enemies that pursue me, I need help that comes from beyond myself. It's been a fascinating thing to think about why God, uh, the psalmist uses the phrase, the God of Jacob. It's not used very often, it's only used a couple of times in the Psalms and not very often in the Scriptures, but he's using the that metaphor of how God dealt with Jacob in the same way that we just uh, talked about Isaiah 30. God did that same work to leave him alone like a signal flag on a hill. And if you remember the story of Jacob, he was a schemer and deceiver, and he alienated his whole family and had to flee Esau because he stole his birthright and blessing. And when he gets to his uncle Laban's, he continues the same scheming and uh, self-reliance. He gets four wives, Laban sort of shows himself to be a, sort of a match for Jacob, but uh, he ends up with uh, great herds and wealth uh, to the point where he's now alienated his uncle Laban. And so he has to flee one family and go back the other direction to another family member who he knows is at enmity with him. And he's in a huge bit of trouble. And what does God do with Jacob? He doesn't abandon him, but he meets with him at night and wrestles with him all night long. That wrestling is a part of what cease striving is all about. Stopping just our self-reliance to do it all without God. It's not an absence of effort, but it's a struggling with God himself, coming to him for dependence and reliance. And that episode at the River Jabbok that night was a a life-changing event for Jacob. 
Because the next morning, he'd set up this elaborate scheme of gifts to appease his brother Esau, and he walked through all of his plans, all of his appeasements, and went straight up to Jacob, I mean to Esau, and uh, came humbly, uh, not relying on any tricks or any schemes, but relying on God to be his strength, uh, and they were reconciled. Jacob was a changed person because God wrestled with him, because he brought him to a place where he was ready to acknowledge his uh, utter inability to manage his life and where he would depend upon God, the Almighty One. So how do we switch from that self-management to reliance upon God? First part is to admit our weakness. It's when we see that we're all alone on the mountaintop, when we have no resources to call on ourselves, we're defenseless and vulnerable, that we're prepared to be quiet, to cease striving and wait on God. Paul tells us this in the midst of tumults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties, that when he is weak, then he is strong. So Paul boasted about his weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in him abundantly. Learning from Paul, we're encouraged to celebrate our weaknesses, to be those that admit that we don't have the answers, that we don't have uh, all the resources that we need. We look to, uh, to God for help because we know ourselves to be bankrupt. We turn to God and His power and strength. And a second part of that is to cling to God, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, to hold on to Him and keep holding on to Him. Not that uh, we can make Him answer the way we want Him to answer, but that we're going to keep relying upon Him. Trouble will bring us to the end of our strength. It will exhaust our answers. But knowing God is experiencing Him to be present with us, even if he doesn't bring solutions. And that presence is that which is like that river in the city of God that brings a sense of peace and wholeness, even in the midst of the earth shaking and the tumult and catastrophes that we're facing in our lives. I've talked with many of you over these past several weeks about the psalm. We had uh, opportunity for many of you to write in about these psalms and tell us what psalms you wanted read and studied over the summer. And uh, so I've read some of those responses and have talked with a number of you. And it's amazing to me that everyone that I talked to, every uh, citation I read, uh, came to say the same little phrase in terms of the conclusion that God brought each of those persons uh, after reading Psalm 46. And here was the the same phrase said over and over again, God, you've got this. God, you've got this. God brings us to a place where we don't have the answers, and we don't know what's going to happen, but we know that he's in control. There's a trust in his strength, in his presence, in his care that is unexplainable, and it brings a certain sense of confidence and resilience God is with me, and I can rest in his strength. He will take care of me in this situation. If we're to admit our weaknesses and rely on God's strength, we really need to know that God is strong, don't we? And that's what this psalm uh, lastly tells us. God is to be seen in the light of this psalm as the all-powerful, the mighty warrior fighting for us. We sang about that earlier with the lion and the lamb, uh, the lion of Judah fighting our battles. Second half of the psalm shows us that God's not a silent comforter out somewhere, or He's not trying to bring us off to a silent tower off in the wilderness somewhere as our refuge and our strength, but He comes to be our refuge 
and our strength in the midst of the fray, in the midst of the catastrophe and the trauma. He wants to bring himself to be present and to defeat the forces of evil and chaos. Verse 6 says, the nations rage, but what does God do? He utters his voice and the earth melts. Verses 8 and 9, he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God enters our broken, chaotic world and fights to defeat all the forces of evil and to bring about their destruction. Psalm 46 presents a picture that's not just about a personal refuge or something that, where God sort of helps uh, be a balm to our own soul. That's true. But there's far more that's depicted in this psalm. This is a psalm that's talking about God do, dealing with the problems of the whole earth and remaking it, taking uh, all that's broken and wreaking havoc on the world and redoing it so that it might be healed and restored, so that the broken places might be mended. And that, what's, that is what God is about as a mighty warrior, not just to touch the particular places of trouble that we experience day to day, but to make all things new, to make all things right. No book in the Scriptures give us a better picture than, of this than the book of Revelation. Revelation is often a tough book to study through. Uh, it's really a simple book if we uh, would let it be. <laughs> the seven cycles of seven, and each of those seven cycles uh, most of the first half of the cycle is all about the chaos and the tumult that evil forces are wreaking havoc on the, on the world and on God's people. And it always seems each cycle that God's going to lose, that the powers, powers of, of darkness are just too great and too powerful. We see beasts that seem immeasurably strong, um, powers that seem like they cannot be defeated. But each cycle ends with the victory of the Lamb. Chapter 19 is the climax of the whole story. And in that, it's when the enemies of God are gathered for that final battle, and they're amassed in their strength, and it's, it's just certain. There's no way. The picture that's painted is that there's no way that the uh, forces of God are going to be anything but defeated. So the battle is poised and ready. But there's an amazing turn in, in chapter 19. God wins the victory. It's automatic. It's complete. It's total. And there's no battle. There's no Armageddon, folks. There's no final battle. What's depicted in Psalm and in Revelation 19 is the end of the enemies of God. And it's sudden and it's total. And there's no war. It's all finished. There. Uh, killed off by God. And what we're told in, Psalm, in Revelation 19 is that there's a great supper of God, and it's the birds feasting on the carcasses of the evil ones. All things are renewed. The new heavens and the earth are come. God has remade all things. The lamb wins. The victory is Jesus himself, the lamb. Jesus himself is our refuge and our strength. He enters the world and becomes man to face and combat evil and the brokenness of the world and to make all things new. If you think about every aspect of Jesus' three-year ministry, it's just incredible. He confronts the forces of evil single-handedly, forgiving sinners captive to their guilt and shame, healing the brokenness in body, touching lepers to make them whole, making the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, releasing the demon-possessed and restoring them to their right mind. 
He's confronting the oppression of false religion, engaging the oppressive kingdom power of Rome with the gospel of the kingdom whose power operates on an entirely different plane that changes everything and brings freedom and justice. Jesus was so strong that he managed that conflict just the way he wanted it to until the right moment for uh, his surrender to the forces of evil so that he might conquer them. He told demons to be quiet. He told them to, to hush and be still. He uh, orchestrated his life and so that he, even though he would skirt Jerusalem, he never went there until it, the time was ready for his surrender to the powers of this world so that it would happen exactly like he said, that he would suffer at the hand of the chief priests and scribes. He would be crucified, buried, and the three days later he would rise. Jesus is the ultimate mighty warrior who renews all things in a battle he controls, surrendering to earthly destructive powers so that he would overcome them on the cross and proclaim that victory through his resurrection. When you remember this psalm, I want you to remember the phrase, be still, and think of the picture of Jesus stilling the seas with a word. It's characteristic of his whole ministry. It's characteristic of his way of dealing with us, with the troubles that we face. He speaks one word, and it's calm. He says, hush, just like you would to a little child, and the sea is calm. That's what we're looking to when we're speaking to Jesus about relying upon him, when we look to him to be our strength and our stronghold. We're looking to the one who is that mighty and that powerful, who could say, be still, and all is set right. Let God move all of us to get in touch with the trauma of the troubles in our own life to admit our powerless and see God as the Lord of hosts, the mighty warrior, to turn to Jesus, to let him manage our lives and to be our strength. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do come to you and want to learn how to see striving and to know that you're God, to see you and know you as the God who has made all things new. Help us, Father, to admit our weakness, our vulnerability, our need, and to turn to you as the one who is the tower of strength, the mighty warrior, and to rest in you. We ask these things through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.